When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Obviously, that's a sort of fun, sexy new company. But I think the bigger story here is this, you know, clear push to regulate SPACs. This is Tom Fox. That was Professor Karen Woody, who joins me for this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where we take up the enforcement actions in late 2021 on J.P. Morgan for electronic document retention and Nicola for imprudent tweets and other social media outreach from its former CEO, Trevor Milton. We take a deep dive into both enforcement actions and Karen uses it to comment on the regulatory atmosphere around SPACs at this point in time. I know you will enjoy it. And I wanted to start with um, J.P. Morgan because they were embroiled in a enforcement action involving both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the CFTC for failures in electronic record keeping. And this was not um, a one-off failure. This was a $200 million total fines and penalties failure. And I found this uh, a very interesting case, particularly from the um, SEC perspective. Neither uh, the SEC order or the CFTC order really went into to a lot of detail that we typically see, but the um, it was pretty clear to me that at least from the SEC's perspective, they were very upset with J.P. Morgan, and they were upset because uh, they had policies and procedures which were not followed. They had supervisors who were in charge of training their employees and then overseeing them and monitoring on these procedures and policies and procedures, and the supervisors were some of the most recalcitrants. And by electronic record keeping, uh, it was, I probably should have specified, it was in the trading function where, uh, by mandate, by federal mandate, they have to record transactions. For those who may think this is a new requirement, it's not. I can remember uh, doing arbitrations involving trading cases in the 90s, and they actually physically recorded all calls. Uh, for, and that was a fabulous record. If you had uh, any sort of dispute thereafter, we've gotten a little more sophisticated and you don't have cassette recordings anymore, but those same rules and regs existed. And there was a complete, total, and utter failure by the compliance function who was charged with overseeing this. And uh, the actual implementation went down to the front line to these supervisors. The um, supervisors uh, used WhatsApp uh, and Slack. Zoom and other uh, ephemeral messaging uh, strategies to have literally thousands of text messages that were not available. 
Uh, unfortunately for J.P. Morgan, they seemed to be unaware this was going on to the point where uh, the issue arose for Morgan, for J.P. Morgan, <clears throat> when the SEC was investigating some counterparties on trades. The counterparties produced the text messaging. Uh, the SEC went to J.P. Morgan and said, uh, why haven't you told us about this? And then they laid a subpoena on them, and J.P. Morgan didn't respond to the subpoena. One way to piss off the regulators. Then, uh, when the SEC came back and said, no, 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 we really meant it, uh, produce all of this, uh, J.P. Morgan did a deeper dive and found out, well, maybe we do have some records, uh, which, once again, is not good in the eyes of the regulators. So, a, a massive fine and penalty, by far the largest for the failure. And the thing that struck me, Karen, was that there was no illegal behavior, or uncovered, rather, uh, that came up because of this. It was simply this failure to engage in mandated uh, electronic record keeping. So uh, I thought a lot of lessons for the compliance professional that perhaps we can talk about. But uh, you were also intrigued with the Nicola fine. Uh, and I wanted to hear your take on that. Sure. Well, uh, as I'm assuming many of your listeners are aware, Nicola, um, the... Uh, elect, I guess it's not even electronic. It's a uh, company that <laughs> ostensibly makes hydrogen-powered trucks or plans to is in the works of making those uh, trucks and vehicles on hydrogen power. Um, just this week, they settled with the SEC for $125 million um, to settle uh, a number of allegations about the failure uh, of the company to prevent its then-CEO, Trevor Milton, from making a number of allegedly false uh, statements about the products and about the company and about, um, you know, whether they work or not. And so famously there's a, a video that is posted where, you know, they think the truck is moving on its own power, but it turns out it's actually just uh, rolling down a hill, and then they altered the video to make it look like it was operating on its own power. They just... They shifted the video uh, frame so it looked like it was going straight instead of downhill. So those things, again, like your story, don't look great, and the regulators are not very happy about it. Uh, what's most fascinating about this case is the fact that um, Nicola went public via SPAC. And so the timeline here, I think, is very interesting, and I would argue maybe somewhat problematic in terms of the enforcement ability of the SEC, in the sense that uh, Nikola merged with a company called Vetco um, IQ, and that merger occurred in March, I believe, of 2020. Vetco IQ, again, via SPAC, went public uh, in May 2018 via IPO. It then had, at that point, 24 months to find a partner to do sort of the marriage of the spec. And they managed to do that just right down to the wire um, only a few months before that 24 month window expired. And they obviously merged with Nikola, at which point they then de and that is how Nikola is trading. The reason um, I think it's interesting is that a number of these statements and, uh, you know, propaganda that Trevor Milton was making via tweets and via podcasts, a lot of that happened prior to the despacking point, meaning Nikola isn't at that point itself a publicly traded company. And so more than just sort of this, you know, interesting, you know, fraudulent seeming uh, activity by, you know, a hot company that, you know, 
there's no irony that it's called Nikola because it's supposed to be sort of a, a cousin to Tesla in some ways, although those companies are not related. Obviously, that's a sort of fun, sexy new company. But I think the bigger story here is this you know, clear push to regulate SPACs. Given the fact that some people might argue that SPACs are kind of a Trojan horse around an IPO, and these regulations about conditioning the market and all the sort of standard IPO regulations that are in existence, SPAC mergers and the way that companies go public via SPAC is in some ways an end around some of those regulations. And here we have the SEC going after statements and propaganda and things that look like it's very much conditioning the market, um, things that wouldn't be allowed if this company had gone public via IPO. So I think this story really is more about the SPAC structure, this idea that the SEC very much wants to push back or at least get um, additional eyes on and regulation around companies that go public in this manner. And so obviously Trevor Milton um, is indicted and is still um, in, in the midst of fighting his own individual charges on this. Uh, all of that will still play out through next year, but the company has settled in a no admit no deny. Um, the company, the angle on the company, though, like you, the J.P. Morgan story, is very much one that is important for all compliance officers because the issue with the company really was this inability to rein in the CEO from saying certain things that the company, I think, knew could be certainly very problematic. Uh, and so it, it, the lesson for compliance officers is certainly to make sure that there is some ability to check what is being said by these sort of rock star CEOs as they are out trying to raise money um, for the companies or even just describing the new technology that they're bringing to market. So, like I say, two things, a major um, lesson for compliance um, officers and compliance professionals, but also a bigger lesson, I think, for SPACs and, and how SPACs need to be very careful about who they are merging with and then maybe the baggage uh, that comes when you are um, merging with new companies uh, in that way. Karen, I thought there was lots of lessons learned, and uh, let me just continue your thoughts on SPACs because... Uh, the SEC obviously is troubled by SPACs. They're troubled by their inability to regulate anything up until the time of the de-SPACing when the acquired company goes public. Do you think the SEC might use this as a way to leverage perhaps more control in the pre-acquisition period or something like that? I think so. And we've seen a little of that um, before with the SEC, even stepping in before a de-spacking point to say the due diligence wasn't sufficient. Um, I think Gensler very much has this on his radar and the SEC more broadly does to ensure, again, they have a real uh, worry that this, this type of structure is problematic to investors. And they think in their, you know, in their mission to protect investors, really looking at what investors are aware of, the amount of disclosure they have seen, both in the merger and then in the despacking points. Uh, all of that really is going to be uh, closely scrutinized by the regulators because they do, I think they are concerned that SPACs are you know, a shortcut to the market um, and are an end around some of, like again, the very robust structure that is required to go public via IPO 
But if you're at the SEC, you would argue that that is because it's to protect investors. They know what they're buying. They know what they're getting into. And there's not as much of that protection when you're dealing with SPACs. Karen, uh, if this case sounds somewhat familiar or suspiciously familiar, uh, we might uh, think about Elon Musk, uh, who famously gave a tweet of, uh, I think it was $420 a share, to take uh, Tesla private. Uh, he got that didn't happen. Eventually, that did not happen. He got into hot water with the SEC, and the SEC fined him twenty million dollars. It's a huge leap from twenty million to one hundred and seventy-five million. So I was intrigued to maybe ask you, uh, really, the difference in those fines and penalties. Is it uh, partly the not only the quality or lack thereof of Mr. Milton's tweets, but the ubiquitousness of them, as opposed to Musk with uh, just a one or a few tweets, and then the remedy put in place that you already hit on, which is somebody has to oversee and review these, did that really come out of uh, what we saw the SEC say or do to Elon Musk? We'll be right back with our continued exploration of J.P. Morgan and Nicola after this message. Sure. I mean, Elon is always in the headlines and has always had somewhat of a target on his back. And some of that is justified based on his behavior, as we all as we all know, um, in some ways. Uh, I think, again, I would harken back to what I think is the major takeaway from the Nikola case is that it is the SPAC. I think it's really looking more closely and scrutinizing more closely companies that don't have, like Tesla, sort of years of documentation, years of public filings. Um and, and so I think there was, I think that is the shot across the bow that might explain some of the, you know, the tighter screws on this particular uh, enforcement action. Um, and then I think uh, with Elon, the, the tweets weren't entirely about the product. I mean, it was just, it's him sort of spouting off at that point, even making a joke that he later claimed had to do with, you know, marijuana culture and 420. I mean, he's, he's sort of a bit of a just joker. Whereas I think Milton really was pumping up the market for people considering investing in his company. So I think the timeline of those two, um, those two individuals and when they're making those statements really factors into the risk that the SEC sees when, when those statements are made. Uh, the other thing that intrigued me, uh, and particularly around your thoughts on uh, Elon Musk and his fine and penalty, was uh, we're all uh, looking towards the jury uh, to make a decision in the Elizabeth Holmes case. And we saw lots of testimony about claims she allegedly made during her uh, CEO-ship of Theranos, and now we see uh, Trevor Milton and how he tried to sell uh, Nicola, uh, certainly prior to going public and even after de-spacking it and going public. And it really pointed to me the difference in mentality and approaches uh, from companies trying to raise money privately, i.e. not in the public markets, and those uh, that, that are in the public market uh, how, how does, how is, let me see if I can ask the question correctly. How does a CEO make that shift from cheerleader and uh, raiser of funds to uh, CEO of a public company with lots more obligations? Is it, 
is such a high failure rate that you really need to bring in a new leadership team after you go public? Uh, can someone who really is a visionary or at least believes they're a visionary and wants to, to sell that vision, even if they have to fake it till they make it, uh, is that person capable of, of doing the things necessary to run a public company? And how do you evaluate that in due diligence? That's a great question. And, and I mean, even just the sort of behavioral, you know, psychology of that is that you can't imagine some of these sort of rock star CEOs that come up with these ideas and, and raise money privately stepping aside once, you know, they're, they can finally launch the company. I mean, that, that is a big ask of, I think, anyone, honestly. Um, but I, I, I do think that uh, this idea of um, being cheerleader, raising funds, doing it privately, and, and then shifting to recognizing the very um, strict, as I said, to robust structure around what can be said and what can't be said when your company then is going public and getting um, investors from anywhere. That distinction, I think, really is is the cornerstone of a lot of securities laws. And so there should be, again, a lot of due diligence. I hope a lot of attorneys and compliance professionals involved in that very important shift from going from private to public. And so it's not new, I don't think. I think we've seen a lot of people recently, you know, sort of have a lot of foot faults on that. But I think you're pointing out exactly one of the issues, which is it's hard to step away. It's hard to shift gears and, and to, you know, actually enter into what is sort of seen as the quiet period before going public and those type of things. That's a tricky, uh, that's a tricky place to, to be. And so I think the board really needs to step up and the compliance professionals need to make clear what is allowed and what is not allowed because it's, it's a tricky shift that I think a lot of CEOs aren't maybe fully aware of. Now let me shift back to uh, J.P. Morgan. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is, I know you've sat across from the SEC in negotiations when you were in private practice, and I've talked to a lot of white-collar practitioners, both former DOJers and those uh, who've not been in the government, and to a man or a woman, they all say the most important thing when you sit across from the regulators is your credibility. Uh, Because if you self-report, usually the first or second question is, do you have the documents tied down? And you have to be able to answer that accurately and uh, because if you don't uh, and you don't have them tied down and you represent you do have them tied down, it's going to hurt you, your credibility throughout that investigation. And it may hurt your credibility uh, professionally down the line as well. So when I saw that the SEC, one, had to go to J.P. Morgan, not once but twice, uh, and then read some of the uh, uh, language in the uh, order, it seemed to me that uh, that credibility was lacking uh, for J.P. Morgan and that the SEC uh, really penalized Morgan because they, one, misrepresented intentionally or not, or unintentionally, I should say, and then uh, they couldn't still uh, answer the SEC when the SEC had the evidence in, in uh, form of the, the counterparty's documentation of electronic record keeping. So I really wanted to start with asking you, uh, from your from your perspective, uh, is that credibility as critical with the SEC as it is with the DOJ or other regulators? Absolutely. I mean, it really a lot of these negotiations are built on trust. It's a lot of the reason why some of the big partners at all these you know large DC New York firms are former 
regulators uh, because, you know, the pitch even for them to get some of the cases is, I know these people, I used to work there, there's a trust already existing, so we'll be able to go in and really negotiate because we're already coming from an existing relationship. Uh, I, I mean, some people call that the revolving door of Washington, but I do think there's some purpose to it, which is exactly that, this idea that I trust this person, I used to work with them, and so it's easy for me to figure out how to start these negotiations from a place where we can both walk away feeling like we uh, have achieved something that we want out of it. And so this idea that, you know, especially the things like that the SEC discovered some of this by virtue of doing other uh, and looking into other companies and then learning this about J.P. Morgan, every all of the facts around this particular story suggest that the SEC is fed up and that, they, you know, J.P. Morgan very much breach that trust if there if there was any so i think you're your way you're really um you're on your back foot if you're jp morgan and not going in again sort of acknowledging what you did or or self-reporting or, or setting up some understanding that you're willing to comply with uh the regulators that's it, not it's not a good look for jp morgan you're right there was also a requirement in the jp morgan sec uh, cease and desist order for what they called a quote compliance consultant end quote to oversee J.P. Morgan's execution of its obligations under the order and building out its compliance program around electronic uh, record keeping. Uh, I have to say uh, I can't even say compliance consultant because that to me was exactly what a monitor does. But uh, so there, I wanted to ask you a couple of things, whether whatever moniker you might want to put on it, I, I suppose oversight would be a, a fair moniker. But it went into an incredible level of detail down to the compliance consultant had to report on not only the discipline uh, rendered on employees who violated the electronic record keeping, but also whether that discipline was consistent throughout the organization, meaning from senior managers all the way down to the frontline traders. Is that something uh, you typically would see in an SEC order? And if not, why would you think the SEC would go to that level of detail? Um, I, th- I think you're right. And I, I see maybe the, the trajectory of your question suggests that I, do, I think this is a little bit um, – not in keeping with how typically these uh, settlements may go. I think the detail goes back to what you were saying before about how miffed the SEC was, how much they don't trust J.P. Morgan. Again, they had existing policies that they had flounded. So it's not an issue of the SEC saying, okay, well, now you got some policies. Let's make sure you're following them. They already had not been following them. And so we're already starting from a place where the SEC is not trusting um, the company I also, with you, I, I raised my eyebrows also at the compliance consultant because I thought, isn't this just a monitor or maybe we're just using a new term now? Um, but I, And so I, I think that they're really going to lean heavily on that person and make clear to J.B. Morgan that this is not something they're going to take lightly or that they're going to let this sort of fall by the wayside. I think they'll be continually checking in with that person to make sure that you know, they are, they're, they're keeping to what they said they would do. This is Tom Fox again. I would urge you to check out Karen Woody's new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, where with students from her insider trading class, she explores the history of insider trading. It's a unique format for a podcast with Karen interviewing her students, but her students are great, very knowledgeable, and I know you will enjoy it. 
Once again, it's Classroom Insider, and it appears on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, which is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.